Hundreds of thousands take to the streets in Europe protesting the rising cost of living, wage cuts and proposed changes to pension plans. What is the likely political impact? Hello, I'm Arnold Neider and this is The Heat. In the United Kingdom, outraged workers stage mass walkouts, double-digit inflation and stagnant wages drive a half a million British teachers, public transport workers, university lecturers, civil servants and airport staff onto the streets. The biggest industrial action in more than a decade. In Spain, outraged health workers say conservative regional governments are slashing wages and destroying the public health system. In France, demonstrators condemn government pension reforms that raise the minimum retirement age from 62 to 64. French President Emmanuel Macron is on the defensive. In countries where people live longer and where we've created strong and fair systems built on equality between generations, when you have fewer and fewer workers and more and more pensioners, and if you want to maintain the social contract between generations, you have to push ahead with these reforms. There's a lot to discuss. Let's bring in our panelists from London. Jonathan Liss is a political commentator and journalist. Also from the UK, Wayne Fitzgerald is leader of the Peterborough City Council. From the other side of the channel in Paris, Joaf Tucker is assistant professor at the American Graduate School. And joining us from Doha, Remy Pierre is senior partner at Emilia Advisory. Welcome to all of you. Joaf Tucker, let me start with you. There have been massive demonstrations across France against government proposals to increase the retirement age from 62 to 64. It was, in fact, one of Emmanuel Macron's campaign promises. But where are we right now? Are the two sides talking or are they holding fast to their positions? They were not talking pretty much over the last three to four weeks. They are starting modestly to talk uh, over the last two days or so. It's done in an informal way, a few phone calls and uh, uh, intermediaries who are trying to bridge over. Um, uh, most probably this is going to go on because there's sort of a transitional period which had started uh, yesterday, today, uh, due to several elements, due to the fact that parts of France are on vacances, which is a holy thing in France, the holidays, the, the ski holidays. So uh, both the unions and the government do not want to force too much on these sacred moments when French people with the police go up to the mountains to, and, and the ski slopes. Um, this is also why the next actions, the next uh, demo massive demonstrations and perhaps strikes will, will take place only according to the union's planning in about three weeks from now. So during this transitional 15 days or so, there must probably be some contact. Will those contacts be enough? And will it be beyond these contacts sufficient substance in terms of the reform itself? It is too early to know. And Joab, uh, Emmanuel Macron, he won re-election last year. Um, what does this mean for him politically? Macron, one thing should be said in favor of Macron's overall position, which I don't know whether it's a good thing or a bad thing in high politics, which is consistency. 
Macron said from the very first day he uh, uh, announced the fact that he's running for president, he was an ex-minister of finance, the youngest candidate ever uh, uh, to reach uh, uh, the, the Elysee Palace, that one of the major things he intends to do is to once for all reform the pension system in order to make France more productive, in order to stand by the standards of the EU, the European Union. He tried to do so about three years ago uh, with a different project, which actually was even more revolutionary in terms of uh, modifying, changing, altering the current present system, and did, did not really fail. He had difficulties, and then COVID arrived, and of course altered everything on the political and social scenery. And then uh, by the time COVID uh, was away, of course, his mandate was pr practically over. He was indeed, as you said, re-elected for five more years about six months ago. And one of the first things he said, I'm back to my pension reform with a different formula, mm -hmm. which is in a way more modest and less ambition than the one he was trying to put in action in 2019. But this one hurts even more resistance down the street in the unions and even within his uh, own political party. Rémi Pierre, uh, of course, Emmanuel Macron uh, won a five-year term. Uh, the next election, election uh, will be held in 2027. But his party doesn't have the majority in the French Assembly. He will need the support of right-wing parties to pass this legislation. How does that complicate uh, what's being proposed? Um, you're absolutely right. He, he doesn't have absolute majority in, in, in Congress right now. However, if you actually add up the, the votes from the right-wing parties, which are traditionally in, in favor of pension reforms, he will likely be able to pass his, 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 his law in the next few weeks. Uh, even if he actually has to engage the confidence in his government, you know, the sacred, you know, 49.3 article in the in French constitution, which actually puts, uh, you know, passes the, the, the law without, without a vote and then, you know, asks for a vote of confidence on, on the government. This actually has done this, you know, on, on other texts in the last few months. So he's ready to actually go uh, up to this level to, have, to pass his reform. Even if, if the, uh, the Renaissance party in itself doesn't have a majority, there are sufficient forces around to actually gather around this text to have it pass across. Uh, the opposition is actually fairly divided because you have a, a position from the extreme right and extreme left that even if they both oppose the text, will not gather together to vote a motion of, of non-confidence to his government. So it's likely that he will be able, after a series of, uh, of discussion in Congress, a series of amendments, the 16,000 amendments right now, uh, you know, passed forward by, by especially the, the extreme left, uh, after the, the revision or, or, you know, moving fast on, on this process, the law is likely to pass in Congress. And Remy, uh, let's look at the other side of this uh, dispute. Uh, the workers, the demonstrators have taken to the streets. What kind of leverage did they have to get their way? So, I mean, the main uh, concerns that, that those workers have is obviously the passing of, of the uh, age of our retirement from 62 to 64, which is actually more demanding on, on the poorest of the workers, and especially the ones that, you know, started working very early uh, in, in, in their careers. So people that started maybe working 17 years old and, and so on. And, and maybe there will be a series of, of twitch on, on the actual, you know, law and, 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 and text that Macron is, try, is trying to, to move forward. Uh, there's uh, not, not support again on, on, on the pension reform. There's very unlikely to have uh, support in, in, in France on, on the pension uh, reform. But at the same time, the main worry for Macron is that potentially this movement 
would become more violent. Uh, there's still very much a trauma of the Yellow Vest movements a couple of years ago. There's worries from the Macron administration that even if, you know, uh, if you look, as I was mentioning, in Congress, it's likely the tax will pass, that this moment would, uh, movement would radicalize and become, you know, a, a, a more general opposition against, you know, what is perceived as a privileged class, what is perceived as people not making the same effort as the poorest of the workers in the street that will be more impacted by this reform. Wayne Fitzgerald, uh, let's look at the situation in the United Kingdom. We've seen months of demonstrations, of protests on the streets there as well. Uh, we've seen nurses, ambulance workers, railway workers, schools have closed, air travel has been affected. It's been described as a cost of living crisis. Now, there in the United Kingdom, there have been talks between the two sides. Have those talks gone anywhere? I think the government is holding a firm line on against the uh, demands, mostly of the unions. Look, we would all agree around the world that, you know, people who work in health and social care should be paid more, our emergency services should be paid more, but it all comes at a cost to the taxpayer. And who is going to pay that cost? Taxes are already at an all-time high for the Conservative Party, you know, unprecedented numbers for a, a low-tax party. And members of the public are not keen to pay more tax. So it's a difficult balance and there are pay bargaining uh, uh, bodies in the UK that are meant to deal with public sector pay and the government is trying to get them to do that whereas pressure from the unions is trying to force government to give extortionate excruciating amounts that the country can ill afford it's not that you know most ordinary people government MPs myself would like to see people paid more but you have to live within your means and we can't just open the floodgates to pay claims that will send inflation spiraling even further out of control and you only need to look to Europe where much of that is already happening uh, it's a slower recovery in places like Italy and Spain that you just featured whereas the UK has actually bounced back much quicker but it's tough here it's tough in Europe and it's tough across the world, particularly, though, in Europe, with all the problems that we have with the cost of living crisis, the energy crisis brought on by Putin's invasion of Ukraine. It's just a difficult time for everybody right now. Wayne, one of the uh, biggest voices we've been hearing on the workers' side is that of Mick Lynch. He's a very high-profile union leader. Let's listen to some of what he had to say recently. They are responsible for your poverty, and they have got to solve it. And if they're not able to, they need to get out of the way now. Let's get a general election on and let's get a new government that acts on behalf of our people. So, Wayne, you heard the McLynch calling for an election. Um, what does this mean for the stability of the government of Rishi Sunak? You'll recall I mentioned him last time I was on the programme in passing. But if you listen to that rhetoric, that 1970s hard-left Labour rhetoric, what I see there is an attempt to undermine government by the unions and force the Conservatives out of power by using those hard-left you know, 70s tactics. And to most people, it doesn't wash. Mick Lynch is not the voice of the ordinary man in the street. He is the voice of the past. Jonathan Liss, what do you make of this? Is Mick Lynch trying to undermine government? Um, is he hard left? He's a left-wing leader of a union. It's absolutely within his right uh, to seek 
democratic change. It's, it's, it's not true that he doesn't have a democratic mandate, that he has uh, no right uh, to do what he's doing. Uh, he's acting on behalf of uh, the people in his union. That's literally his job. And if he wants to suppress the political change, that's entirely within his remit. It doesn't mean that uh, the government is going to be forced out. There's no mechanism to force out the government other than a general election. And uh, no union can force a general election. So he's simply calling for political changes. Any opponent of the government uh, will do and does do. So this, this talk about some, some kind of democratic danger is simply not true. But there's a greater point here. Of course he's angry, and of course people across the country are angry, because uh, the government can afford it. Well, this, this idea that, that Wayne is talking about, about sort of, uh, the wage prices, increasing inflation, the wage price spiral uh, philosophy, is an outdated 1970s philosophy, which is now completely discredited. It's not wage rises that are driving inflation. It's profit that is driving inflation. And, you know, we don't have a, a very, very large public sector like we did 40 or 50 years ago. Giving nurses uh, a real-terms pay rise or even a slightly smaller real-terms pay cut is not going to increase inflation. Most economists, in fact, almost all economists agree on that point. Jonathan, one other thing that Wayne talked about, and that is uh, these demands that are being made for workers for higher wages. Um, Wayne says, look, there is no appetite in the United Kingdom for higher taxes. Well, there never is anyway for higher taxes, no matter what the situation. But does it have to be higher taxes? Can't these increases for wages uh, among these workers who are on strike right now come from, some, from cuts in other sectors? Well, you know, the advantage of having your own central bank and, and currency is that actually you have a lot of power over money supply. And we've seen time and time again that the government does have money and can produce money when it needs to uh, in sort of national emergencies and uh, for COVID, uh, sort of, you know, for the energy price cap um, under, under Liz Truss. That was the one thing about Liz Truss's brief premiership that everyone agreed was actually a pretty good thing. The markets didn't budge over that. It only budged when it turned out that she didn't know what she was doing on the stewardship of the economy elsewhere. And so, of course, uh, increasing pay rises um, for nurses, uh, uh, doctors, uh, help, you know, so other, other workers in the economy who keep the economy going is generally seen as a good thing. And the public is actually broadly sympathetic to that. It's not true that you have to have massive tax rises to pay for it. It's actually quite a small increase in the overall share of the economy. Wayne, a chance for you to briefly respond to that, please. A small increase. 18% is not a small increase in some cases. I'm sorry, Jonathan, money doesn't grow on trees. Now, the reason why the well, government does, has found money... Actually, that's what it does. If the government shows that it does grow <laughs> no. on trees when, it, when the government wants it to. That's the whole point. No, it's it's borrowed money. Not true what you're saying. It borrows money. It borrows money, which is why this country is in so much debt, because we borrowed money to pay for the services and for all the bailouts we've given to business. It's not money that's available. It's borrowed money. And borrowed money has to be paid back. The other uh, uh, kind of uh, adage that you'll see the left trot out 
is tax the rich. Well, it's the rich that keep the economy going in terms of they pay the highest amount of tax. So money isn't available unless you want to print more money with quantitative easing. Look, I'm not an economist. I'm not an accountant. But to me, if you have to borrow money, you have to pay it back. And you pay it back through Wait, taxation. Not, taxation is already not, high. It's not rich people that are keeping the economy going. That's the whole point. It's the people who are working the ordinary jobs that keep the economy going. And that is a fundamental problem that we have. OK, I want to get to Joab Toka. Uh, Joab, we've also seen demonstrations over this weekend in the Spanish capital, Madrid. In fact, there were about a quarter of a million workers who took to the streets by one count. They are protesting um, the standard of health care services and costs of health care services in Madrid. Um, I mean, if we look across Europe, there have been demonstrations in various capitals. Is this the winter of discontent, to borrow a phrase from another era? It is a winter of discontent, but I would be cautious in trying to draw some kind of parallel or even more intimate um, um, combining uh, affiliated line between the protests we go through right now in France, the crisis the British are going through, the uh, uh, strikes and social movements in Spain, and in other countries also in Europe, you have movements in, in, in Scandinavia, in Belgium, uh, uh, in Portugal. I don't see clear-cut common values or common social equations around which all these spots of uh, 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 hot political, hot social political weather uh, could be unified. Many, uh, of course, elements, many ingredients within the logic of a social upheaval in France or in Britain or in Spain or elsewhere could be associated through more uh, macroeconomic phenomena and through the explanation and the decoding efforts of some other phenomena. Let them be political because of the, the, the political choice within each country, because of the external pressure that the overall war situation between Russia and Ukraine impose on the entire continent and the levels of tension on, in, on, on public sphere. So all that could uh, add up into the tension uh, ingredient, but not the proper economic or social characteristics mm. uh, of the Spanish market or the British or the French. Jonathan, there was a report that was released by the IMF uh, just over a week ago in which it looked at global GDP growth, country by country and across the globe itself, and it pointed out that in the United Kingdom, growth will be less than 1%. That's extremely weak, and people have been sort of attributing all kinds of reasons for this, but one of the reasons a lot of people uh, are referring to is Brexit. I mean, to what extent can Brexit be blamed for what's going on? Well... It won't surprise you to learn that I think Brexit is a big factor, and I'm sure Wayne, who I think voted for Brexit, will disagree. So I, there won't be any surprises in the answer I'm going to give you. But of course, there is a reason why Britain is doing so much worse relative 
um, to its counterpart economies uh, in, in Western Europe in particular. Um, there is one thing, um, obviously everyone's been buffeted by, by COVID and the, the, after, the aftershocks of lockdowns. Everyone's been impacted by the war in Ukraine. But only one country decided to inflict economic self-harm entirely voluntarily and that was the United Kingdom, when it decided to leave the single market and customs union, therefore putting up major barriers with its largest and most important trade partner, the European Union. And we are suffering as a result of that. You know, the Office of Budget Responsibility forecasts that GDP will be 4% lower uh, than it would have been in the long term. And we are seeing those figures borne out uh, in, in the, the difficulty of doing business um, with the rest of Europe. You know, we saw car manufacturing fall to its lowest level since 1956. And so this is a problem. And the real problem is the government is not prepared to admit there is anything wrong. And that's the fundamental thing, because if you can't admit there's a problem, you can't begin to solve it. And we're not at that stage in Britain where we can have the honesty to admit that Brexit in its current form is not working. Wayne, Jonathan was right there. You do disagree with that position on Brexit. But there are two points of view. One is that Brexit was very bad for the United Kingdom. The other, which we heard from a Conservative Party leader not so long ago, uh, the ruling Conservative Party, I should say, he, his name is Jacob Rees-Mogg, and he said, look, uh, Brexit presents the United Kingdom with a huge opportunity to become an economic power in its own right without Europe. Um, but was it a mistake? That is still the case. Look, I said on this program before about trade in Europe being on decline for quite a number of years, even before we had the COVID pandemic or indeed the war in Ukraine. So it was a real opportunity, but who knew there was that pandemic that came along and who knew that we'd have the problems that we had? And just to conclude a point, by the way, Anand, 10% yeah. of top UK taxpayers in this country account for 60% of tax to the exchequer. So it's not true to say that rich people don't contribute the most in terms of propping up the economy. On the European issue, look, look at France, look at Spain, look at Italy. All those countries are in the EU. Are they faring any better in reality? No, they are not. I think we're on an early road in our Brexit journey. Okay. Hopefully we can go forward positively. Okay, Remy Pierre, those countries that Wayne mentioned, are they faring any better? Well, actually, if you look in details, they are. Uh, I mean, the situation in the UK right now is, is, is drastically, you know, worse than the other countries in the, in the European Union. You actually had yesterday a report by the European Commission confirming that, you know, the uh, perspective in terms of the, of the economy are slightly better than what was originally expected and that the risk for a recession is, is actually very limited in the, in the European Union. However, in the case of the UK, you have an inflation above 11.5 percent, far above what you're seeing across the board in the European Union. All those countries are actually seeing you know, external impacts from whether it's the energy prices, whether there's a conflict in Ukraine that obviously you know, impacts strongly the, the state of the economy. You do have also you know, some, some demands from, from the population after COVID of more investment into the health sector. That's what's happening in Spain. Or trying to work maybe less because they're actually focusing on other aspects of life. And that's why you know, France and, and a lot of French people are in the streets. But the situation in the UK and the demands in the UK 
pay is really based on wage increase. Mm -hmm. The fact that you have a series of different workers that are seeing you know, drastically their, their real wage decrease in front of this very high inflation that has been nourished by this nonsensical decision of Brexit, yeah. uh, by the, the, the kind of also lack of legitimacy right now of a, of a Tory party that has been you know, going from scandals to scandal. It's not the case in France where Macron, as we were saying, has been re-elected six months ago. It's not the case in Spain either. Here there are demands from societies to actually have more investment in the health sector. In the case of the UK, it's a series of poor decisions on the economic front. Remy, there was a piece, an opinion piece, I should say, in the Washington Post written by the uh, journalist Farid Zakaria, and he said there is an easy solution for Britain. Rejoin the EU. Is that realistic? Uh, um, Farid um, has had uh, you know, this similar position of, of, of you know, pushing towards you know, more you know, global uh, you know, uh, agreements between countries, so it's not surprising. I mean, they're actually, you know, now we're talking about regret. Uh, so people that are regretting the decision that was taken by the series of populistic leaders in, in the UK. Uh, in terms of economics, I mean, uh, when you see the impact that it has already and will continue to have on the UK, it will make much more sense. I'm not sure the, the, the European Union is, is willing to actually accept the UK coming back under the same conditions. Uh, I mean, you have to remember that even when the UK was a member of the EU, it has you know, very specific conditions of, of committing less to the European budget, thanks to, you know, Thatcher's negotiations. Uh, and, and I don't think that it's any, anywhere on the, uh, on the objectives of the current government in, in London to actually move towards that direction, because you would have to admit that it made some serious errors in, in the past. So unfortunately, it's not reasonable. It would be the best thing for, for, the, for the United Kingdom. It would be the best thing potentially for the European Union to actually, you know, become, uh, you know, more powerful by welcoming another, another, another country. But I don't think that is, you know, politically feasible because, you know, just the uh, the, the, the government in London would not admit its, its error. Joaf Joker, looking at the broader picture in Europe, um, you know, take a country like France, for instance. It's often been referred to as the welfare state. I mean, these. Uh, social programs that have been put into place after World War II. We've seen that in other European countries as well. I mean, there's been very generous spending on social programs. Um, is there a feeling now, do workers feel threatened that this is coming to an end? The, the workers, and in a more general way, the majority right now of French citizens, let them be workers or not, feel that something is under threat. They are not aware in. They're not looking at the overall picture, in the with the necessary relativity mm -hmm. with which you introduced your question a minute ago. Namely, French people may know somewhere in their minds that actually the social system here is particularly generous and much more generous than the one practiced practically anywhere else in Europe or in the world. But this does not seem to be a factor which is an active and dynamic factor in the way French people shape out their, their opinions. And when the title and the facade of the uh, present reform which is at stake uh, uh, actually is, is summed down to the fact that the legal age of retirement would just go up from 62 to 64 years, this is a facade which in a way, in its all the other elements on scene, and make the resistance and the bitterness yeah. and tomorrow the violence down the street into um, into gear. So you don't and actually it's not a very original French reaction. Yeah. Uh, social things do not live in the 
relativity of situations across the border. Let the border be 100 miles away or 2,000 miles away, okay. right? You're leaving your own uh, uh, local uh, uh, relativity. Wayne, I've only got about 30 seconds left. There was an article in Vox, the online uh, news site, which said that these strikes and protests that we're seeing in the United Kingdom have been years in the making. A decade plus of austerity measures, social service cuts, and lack of government investment under conservative rule. Very quickly, your response to that. I, of course, I'm not going to agree. You know, the, our growth problems have been reported in, in the recent days of being three main things. Uh, our dependence on gas uh, rocketed since the invasion of Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, the pre-pandemic levels of employment have not uh, returned. And also increasing mortgage rates skyrocketing. But the outlook, according to the financial pundits, is that we will perform better than Germany and Japan in the short to medium term. Okay. And we have to leave it there. Thanks to all of you for being with us. That's it for this edition of The Heat. I'm Arnand Naidu in Washington, D.C. of business is to bring value. Business activities in Europe, Asia, and the U.S. reach consumers globally. Trade, manufacturing, energy, 